Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to Truth and Rhythm, Texas-based blues rock guitar slinger, singer, and multi-instrumentalist Lance Lopez. Inspired by giants like Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Billy Gibbons, and Johnny Winter, he's released nine albums since 1998, which was his debut, including 2023's Fantastic Trouble is Good, which was named one of Funkin' Stuff's top 10 rock and blues albums of the year. Though he might not be a household name, Lopez's gritty tone and fretboard agility are prominent in an incendiary emotive playing style that places him among today's best hard-edged blues-rooted guitarists. Having shared stages with the likes of Steve Vai, Jeff Beck, ZZ Top, and Joe Bonamassa, he has also worked with Supersonic Blues Machine, Eric Gales, and Buddy Miles. Speaking of which, coming up on March 1st, he is among the performers at For the Love of Buddy Miles Tribute Concert in Dearborn, Michigan. Lance, man, thanks for joining the show. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Wow, that was quite the introduction. I, I, it was bringing back a lot of memories. I was like, wow, yeah, wow, okay. <laughs> a lot of stuff I've forgotten about there. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, see, when you look back, it can be uh, really impressive. You know, you just don't realize because you keep your head down and keep going and going, right? Pretty much, yeah. 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 It's great. Great to hear. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're welcome. Uh, where are you today? You're at your home in Texas? Well, actually, I'm in Nashville. I've been in Nashville for about five years now. Okay. Yeah, I, re I relocated to Nashville, Tennessee back in, uh, I guess, the end of 2018, kind of the beginning of 2019. So, uh, interesting place, old Nashville. But, yeah, a little bit change of scenery. Um little bit of a, a of a geographical change for me and it's been very interesting and, and it's and it's grown quite a lot just in the few years I've been here it's gotten pretty crazy pretty much everybody I worked with in Los Angeles as a matter of fact is all here now um so it's uh yeah it's been very interesting being in Nashville very different scene uh, than Texas 
And uh, yeah, so um, here we are at the old flat here with uh, uh, here in Nashville. All right. Well, you're just over the Smoky Mountains for me over here in the North Carolina. Nice. And, uh, I migrated from LA also, so it's a little bit different, but uh, yeah, booming here too with how much growth since I came out here. So, but uh, yeah. Nashville's a fun town, you know. I just any place that just centers around music, you got to love it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of diversity and, and a lot of a uh, lot of very interesting characters, a lot of very interesting uh, interesting approaches to music, uh, which is which is a lot different. Uh, Kind of than where I came from in Texas, um, you know, but but somewhat similar, you know. Um, but yeah, it's been quite an adjustment and, and very different and uh, very very cool. A lot of good friends here, and um, you know, when you mentioned Supersonic Blues Machine, and um, years ago when I was in that band, um, they were wanting me to relocate to LA. And I looked at real estate in LA and I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, I was like for, for a house that I bought in Dallas for 150,000, they want 1.5 million for, <laughs> you know? So I was like, and it was Robin Ford, the guitar player. We we're actually on a flight over to Europe. And, um, and it was funny. We were Kenny Aronoff and, and Fabrizio Grassi were sitting in seats, right? two feet away from us and Robin Ford and I were standing up on the flight, walking around, stretching our legs. And, and I was deciding on whether I was going to go to Austin or Nashville. And that was going to be, that was kind of the toss up at that point. And Robin, it was Robin Ford that said, uh, he goes, he got right in my face and he goes, you need to go to Nashville. I don't care what these guys say. <laughs> they're like sitting and I'm like, Robin, they're right there. <laughs> Robin was like, I don't care what these guys want you to do. Go to Nashville. So here we are in Nashville, Tennessee, all these years later. And uh, it's been great. You know, it was great. It's really great when I need to get, um, you know, I need to get some stuff done for, for, you know, music. There's so much accessibility to like guitar repair, amp repair, uh, you know, a vehicle for touring, um, gear and odds and ends i need for touring that's not really accessible in a lot of except la you know maybe or new york um but it's just it's all very accessible and the thing about nashville is it's very compact as opposed to those other places so it's it's uh and i've lived in both other places as well so uh this is like the best of both worlds for me it's it's still in the south i grew up in the south you know and so it's um I'm not so far away, you know, like I was when I was in LA or New York. So um, it's pretty cool. And I've met a lot of great um, friends here, the best guitar players here, like Tom Bukovec and Brent Mason and Guthrie Trap. You know, I've all became friends with all those guys, Ford Thurston, uh, Jack Roosh, a whole host of really great guitar players here in town that, um, that I befriended immediately you know, as soon as I got here. So, and they kind of welcomed me in. So um, that's been really cool. Well, I'm glad that it didn't change your sound too much, you know, because, you know, it's still, it, it hasn't exactly gone toward country, you know, so, let's say, you know, so um, that's right. all good. You know, you ever run right. into Jack White out there at all? 
Uh, you know, I haven't, you know, my girlfriend, uh, she works, she's a sword swallower and like a, a variety act and, and like a Coney Island legend. And she's like circus performer and all of those things. She, uh, she performs at third man records quite a bit. Um, there's a, there's a venue over there called the blue room. And matter of fact, I think she's got a show coming up there in two weeks. Um, but they they do shows over there all the time, and and no, I, I really haven't I haven't seen Jack much. You know, Jack and I know each other from afar, and uh, you know, he sent a whole truckload of amps for me to use over in Memphis on one of my albums I did. So um, no, I don't I don't see him as much, but I do hang out over at Third Man quite a bit, and and uh, my girlfriend uh, Katie Ramirez goes by Lorraine the Thrill. Her stage name she's she's kind of more part of that world than really I am. I got you. So Lance, let's go back and talk a little bit about, you know, how you came to be where you are. Um, looking at, you know, your history, you moved around a lot as a teen and, uh, you know, uh, I guess guitar maybe was, uh, I don't know, a voice in the wilderness or something like that for you that you'd really, you know, glom to. And, um, you were, uh, so young when you first started out playing in bars and things like that. You know, um, what can you tell us about, you know, your formulative guitar years? And it's interesting to me that, you know, you had so much seemingly Stevie Ray influence, but you were young, you know, when he, when we lost him, you know? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I was into guitar and music as far back as I can remember, you know, seeing footage of Elvis on TV. My dad and Elvis Presley were very close friends. They were in the army together. So there was a lot of influence there. And I always just kind of knew Elvis as kind of a member of our family, really. Um, and he was my dad's close bro. I mean, that's kind of how I viewed it. And so those were the first images I had of guitar playing. And I just immediately wanted to do that. So therefore, my father really supported that. And then growing up in the 80s as a kid, I mean, there was just guitar music everywhere. All the rock music was was based in guitar, Van Halen, ACDC, Kiss, all et cetera. So growing up in that kind of world in the arena rock setting, I was able to see all those bands live and see Van Halen and see uh, ACDC, who I saw probably live more than any other band as a child who I always gravitated towards. And then I realized later, I was like, oh, this was just a big high powered blues rock band, you know, and uh, and that's why it just really resonated. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I growing up in that whole world, that was kind of my childhood. You know, uh, my father got me a guitar for Christmas and, and uh, you know, it was like, you know, that really, if you listen to the lyrics of Johnny Be Good, I mean, it literally was like what it was. I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. <laughs> I was in a town close to New Orleans, you know, literally sitting outside under the tree, learning how to play. And um, it's, it's so funny. I listened to that and I was like, man, that sounds like my childhood. <laughs> you know? So. Uh, you know, that's that's how it went. And then um, my mother, uh, my parents, you know, that's, they split when I was very young. So my father went to New Orleans and my mom went to Dallas. And so I went um, to, with my mother to, to Texas and, um, you know, and I'd been going to arena rock shows. Like I'd mentioned, I'd seen all those bands, you know, that were you name it. I saw them in the 80s. I mean, you know, all those, you know, the hair bands, all the rock bands, all the big ones, all the mid level, all of them. And so that was our thing. We went to concerts. And um, so um, 
I started to play, you know, I gravitated more towards of a, a bluesier style. And that's, like I said, that's why about out of all those rock bands, um, you know, ACDC really resonated. Angus, Angus Young guitar playing and Malcolm Young's riffage really like resonated. So uh, when I would jam with my friends, they were all shredder guys. There's a black SG back there. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, dude, look at that. Holy cow, man. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Love yes. Angus. Yeah. Angus. And, and then I, I really identified with him, too, because he was like a little schoolboy, you know? So I was like, hey, man, I'm a little kid, too. <laughs> you know? So, um, but when, so I would play with my friends and everybody was into Van Halen. And in our town where we lived in Shreveport, you know, Van Eddie Van Halen and his wife, his wife was from there. Wolfgang's mom was from Shreveport. And so they were always in town. So all the kids in town wanted to be that. And I was playing more like Angus Young or, you know, I was growing up playing the Chuck Berry record. So I was already like in this blues box thing and I didn't know it. And I would go play with all my friends and they would go, man, you play too bluesy, dude. You know, like it wasn't like it wasn't a good thing. And I remember going home and telling my dad, I was like, all the kids are telling me I'm playing too bluesy and kind of making fun of me for it. And my dad pulled out a BB King record and then he had like a photograph of him and BB King together, you know? And, uh, and he was like, this is BB King. And it just like, it was as important as hearing Jimi Hendrix for the first time. I mean, it just totally like that was like, and then Angus Young began to make sense. I was like, Oh my God, that's what he's playing, you know? And then everybody else clapped in Jimmy page, all those guys, it made sense, you know? And so when we moved to Dallas, when I moved to Dallas with my mother, the first thing I saw in the newspaper was B.B. King was coming. And so I asked my mom, I was, I think I was 12 years old, and I asked my mom, take me to see B.B. And she did. And so when we got to the concert, as soon as we got there, everybody had these T-shirts that had SRV on them, like the entire place. And I was like, what does SRV mean? Like I, and I remember it making me mad, like I was angry about it. And uh, and then out came Stevie Ray Vaughan, and it was his last his last hometown show. Totally blew me away, and I was so into Jimi Hendrix, you know. And I'd never seen anybody. And for me, that was the bar, you know. And I had never seen you know anybody attempt to play Jimi Hendrix until that day. And I think that was the thing, really, to be honest with you. That not alone his sheer power and who he was. But looking back, that's really what did it for me was like, there's finally somebody playing Jimi Hendrix live, you know, and I didn't know anything about Randy Hansen or any of these other guys that had kind of done it before. Um, but, you know, seeing Stevie Ray Vaughan play Voodoo Child was the turning point for me. So I went around to the next day. I, I got all the blues records. I knew I said the blues is what I want to do from here on out. And I went to uh, I went to all the guitar shops in Dallas. And all the, the guys said, oh, well, man, and I was talking about Stevie Ray Vaughan. And they were like, a lot of them were like, big deal. You know, they're all like, they go, man, he hangs out over at Charlie's Guitar Shop. Go hang out with those guys. Like, because they were all like shredder guys and metal guys. And they were like, go over to Charlie's. So I, I had my mom literally take me over there every day. And I would bring like my wah-wah pedal and my, my stack of Hendrix records. And Bob Falds and 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 Charlie, uh, I mean uh, Mark Pollock. Charlie Wurz had already passed away, but Mark Pollock, the original owner, and I met uh, guys like Clint Birdwell, who just sadly passed away recently, and uh, Smoking Joe Kubek, 
And they were all hanging around going, man, Stevie Ray is going to love this little kid. They were like, because all I talked about was Jimi Hendrix, you know, and they were like, Stevie's going to love him. And then like a month later, he was gone. And it was like, what? like what just happened? You know, so it was a really, you know, really big high and a really big low. So, yeah, I just I was accepted into his circle of friends, everybody that knew him, because I was kind of set to meet him and hang out with him when he got home. And um, did, did you so meet everybody Jimmy? that he knew became my, even his mother. You know, I became close with his mom, played a lot of shows with his brother. And um, so, you know, uh, yeah, that influence was very, very impactful. But it really was I learned more from you know his circle of friends and there were a lot of other great guitar players that came out of oak cliff uh guys like rocky athis and david brown and mike mccullough and that whole all those guys they grew up with were all extremely great so i got to grow up and hang around all those guys and in his circle of friends and, and learn that way so uh it was super impactful and then just growing up around the dallas blues scene like I said, around Jimmy Vaughn and Anson Funderburg and all like the real blues purist, you know, and then also the blues rock guys and then the rock guys. So it was, you know, because Dimebag Daryl was a very close friend of mine and, and, and the Pantera world and the metal guys and then the blues guys. So there was this big um, intermingling of people. And then by, you know, by high school, I met Billy Gibbons and, you know, we became super close. So, um you know, just growing up in Texas, I was I was very fortunate and blessed to to be around a lot of great great guitar players and learn from them. And where where were you at in terms of your, uh, you know, skill level and your your career uh, and life when, you know, there was that like wave of uh, young guitar players that emerged in the wake of Stevie's, you know, passing. You know the young guys like Kenny Wayne and and Eric Gales and uh, Johnny Lang and those guys. Um, so they're a little bit older than you or younger than you or where, where we were all about the same age. Well, Eric's a couple years older. Kenny Wayne, you know, and that's what I was going to say about Shreveport. You know, uh, we were both from Shreveport. Our families knew each other well. Um, you know, his dad was our big DJ and concert promoter. Uh, my father was a police officer. Uh, they knew each other, but, you know, I, I didn't have, my dad didn't, you know, my dad's biggest connection was Elvis Presley and he did not abuse that relationship. Like we were more like family. There was no abuse of the relationship or, Hey, help my son out. So as far as like my dad, you know, a lot of those people you mentioned, their parents managed them. You know, my dad didn't manage me. He kind of pushed me out and said, get out there and, 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 you know, make your own way. And so uh, what happened for me during that time is I became a sideman uh, for a lot of great blues and R&B and soul singers. Um, so I didn't have more or less that coddling and that financial investment and that data during, as I call it. <laughs> you know, my dad didn't manage me. Uh, you know, he did not protect my career. He was like, you better be able to get out there and hang. And uh, so which I was very grateful for, man. I got to hang out with all the great guys. And a lot of those guys I was playing with, you know, like Johnny Guitar Watson, Little Milton and Bobby Bland and, and all these different people, 
I didn't even know who they were until guys like Clapton and Ronnie Wood and Rod Stewart and all those guys were coming backstage to hang out with them. And then I thought, oh, my God, there's – and then they were like, do you know who you're working for? And I was like, apparently not. <laughs> I was like, I guess not, man, you know. Um, so it was really cool to, to you know, go out and get that kind of education. You know, I had an opportunity to go to Berkeley School of Music back then, too, Uh and I didn't. I went on the road instead. And I kind of always went, man, you know, should I have gone to school? There's a lot of times where I kind of struggled with that. You know, like, man, I should have went to Berkeley and I should have done this and blah, blah, blah. And then a lot of my friends that graduated from Berkeley go, dude, we were we were wishing we could go do exactly. You just went directly and did what we were wishing we could do while we were sitting in school, you know. So um, that's kind of where it went for me uh, during the height of all that. And, you know, 96, 97, 98, before I put up my last record, I was playing guitar with Lucky Peterson. And Lucky was, uh, you know, just such a phenom. I learned so much from him. And during that era, he was kind of his own force to be reckoned with during all that as well. And, uh, you know, was such a powerhouse performer. I just I remember meeting Prince through Buddy Miles, you know, early on back in the early 2000s. And uh, and I just remember, you know, talking to Prince about what we're talking about, like all the guys I'd played with who were big heroes of his. And uh, and then I'd mentioned Lucky and I'd been playing and he just and I just remember and Ray, he was like, he goes, you played with Lucky Peterson. And I was thinking like, dude, you're Prince. <laughs> I was like, what? And and Lucky had this extreme reverence for Lucky. And, uh, I, I, you know, I just never forget because I didn't realize, you know what I mean? And I always looked at like Prince as this huge superstar. And uh, and as far as the musicianship level, I just I'll never forget that. So that's when it later on down the road is when it really sunk in and landed for me how important that education was and, and how, um, you know, like singing and being a performer, how to engage an audience, you know, um, you know, and how to sing really and how to be a vocalist, you know, uh, really was was the um, was the gift of uh, of that. And, um, you know, and then you mentioned Johnny Lang. I just I'll, I'll just never forget playing show, Johnny coming and playing shows with Supersonic Blues Machine and him drinking beer and like crying. And he was like, Lance, I don't understand why, man, you weren't like so massively fake, like pounding the bar and like i was like johnny it's gonna be okay that was my life you're okay <laughs> like he was like you know and you know it just it it is what it is you know and uh well plus some I, of those guys in my opinion yeah. like johnny lang had to do some compromises and concessions to the record labels and things like that mm -hmm. you know whereas you were just really i i feel you were doing exactly what you wanted to do i did and that, that was the that was the beauty of it um, is that we did get to make the we didn't uh, you know it, it wasn't like a hey we, let's do a record and sound just like Stevie Ray Vaughan or let's do you know this kind of record because everybody else is doing it we were doing kind of what we what we felt you know what 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 was uh, what I, I was just I was just garnering all that influence that I had gotten from playing with Buddy Miles playing with Lucky Peterson playing with all those guys and, um, you know, and just amalgamating it into, you know, my original music, you know, and that's, and I just wanted to write the original music that I felt um, like doing. So, yeah, there wasn't like a whole, 
going after a certain thing or in the genre. Uh, it was just doing what we felt like we wanted to do. Did did you always think you would sing from the get-go or did that kind of get added on? It got added on. You know, it was Bobby Blue Bland. I, I remember I went out and worked for, I've been playing with Johnny Taylor I, and I was playing with Johnny Guitar Watson and and kind of bouncing between Johnny Taylor, Johnny Guitar Watson and Little Milton. And we were like on these package tours and doing these convention centers. And and then I went out on, on a tour with Bobby Blue Bland and it was Bobby. Bobby knew that I had already, I was already friends with Lucky Peterson. And he had known that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, I was going to come play with him. And he was like, man, you got to sing. And I just remember being terrified. And I'm like sitting there with Bobby Blue Blank because I already played a couple shows with him and hearing him sing with like him and Johnny Taylor and those guys would like overpower the band. I mean, they would almost like shut the PA down. They were so powerful, you know, and I was just terrified. And he took me to the back of the bus and he put on a bunch of gospel music. And that's where it started. He uh, sat me down and he put on like Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace record, um, you know, uh, Reverend James Moore and the Mississippi Mass Choir, uh, Reverend James Cleveland, like all this hard, the, you know, the five blind boys on and on and on, you know, all that real heavy duty gospel music and that's so that's where i went oh now it's all really beginning to make sense you know the singing so um that's where it started for me and it was all thanks to bobby blue bland you know i would have never i would have never attempted to be a singer you know johnny taylor who was also a very great singer who i really started with and he kind of always gets credit in my story because he was the first guy that hired me and then introduced me into that world but uh it was it was really Bobby Blue Bland and me and his son Rod are like I mean he's like you know Rod's like my brother and he's just over in Memphis so we we talk quite a bit and we're we're super super tight and close also too because Eric Gales and I you know also grew up together we were lifelong brothers too so all that that huge Memphis connection that we had um, you know I became very close with Rod with uh, with Bobby Blue Bland's son Rod. Uh, and we're the same age, you know, so we were, we, you know, we related to each other uh, very well. And uh, so, yeah, it was really, it was really thanks to Bobby. And, uh, you know, like I said, man, I mean, you know, seeing, you know, talking to Rod Stewart and, and who's that's, you know, his number one singer. And, you know, as I, when I was on tour with Whitesnake later on in the, in the mid two thousands, uh, you know, I would talk to David Coverdale and he would call me in there and go, what was it really like being on tour with Bobby Blake? <laughs> it's like you, I'm telling you stories. I was like, what, <laughs> you know? So it was, it, it, it landed for me how impactful and how important that really was, you know, uh, you didn't know what you didn't know, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and it's probably better that I didn't and go in there really even more terrified. You know, I mean, I think I was already terrified, but, you know, I think had I known in advance, you know, it had probably been a little more overwhelming than it already was. What would you say was uh, the most challenging aspect of your playing uh, to develop as you were coming along in terms of your your style? Uh, it was rhythm, for sure. I mean, it was it was the rhythm playing. I mean, the lead playing, anybody, you know, especially, like I said, growing up in that era of shredders, and tappers and you know the 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 van halens and the steve vies and the satrianis and the yingbe momsteins and the you know the whole thing in the 80s 
uh, it was like I started to learn really quickly that guys focused on doing that, but then they couldn't play with a band. Like they literally, they could sit there and play Eruption, but they couldn't get in a room with a bass player and a drummer and jam. You know, and I, that blew my mind. I was like, wow, you, and, and it was the lack of rhythm. Um, so again, I think that was what another importance of my up musical upbringing playing, being a sideman to all those great soul and R&B and blues artists was that, um, you know, I got to stand back in the back for years and be just a rhythm guitar player, which then helped me later in power trios to cover a lot of space, you know, and to really formulate the, the chordal voicings, even though I may be not using a whole lot, it's still the percussive, everything moving at once and covering all the ground and being able to sit next to a horn section and, and cop, you know, what horns were playing so that when I, I, I got into a power trio, I would think like even lead lines, I would think like horn sections, not guitar players. And Robin Ford and I talk about this. Like Robin doesn't even listen to guitar players. He doesn't listen to lead guitar players. He listens to people that play, you know, different instruments because he's like, if you listen to another guitar player, you're going to end up sounding just like that guitar player. He's like, if you listen to other instruments, that's how you will begin to develop your style. And so I was like, wow, okay, that's good news. I was doing it right the whole time, you know? And listening to, to, to Coltrane, and that's where I, like I, I started to try to develop speed. Was listening to you know jazz horn players and and different people. So um, that that for me, being a rhythm player and having um, you know the ability to sit back and just comp and play rhythm was uh, timing. You know, timing and sitting in a mix and being an ensemblist. It's so easy for a lead guitar player to get out front and get out in front of the band and be, you know, the showboater or, you know, louder than everybody else. It allowed me to really learn how to control, even though, it, you know, a lot of people say, oh, man, Lance plays so loud. Well, yeah, in a power trio, I do. I didn't when I played in a, in a nine piece band with five horn players, you know, uh, and I still don't today. Like if I'm backing a singer or I'm in an ensemble, yeah, it, it needs to sit in the mix. But if I'm out in the front being a power trio where I have to cover this whole side of the stage by myself, um, you know, it's it's the blend. How do how do we blend all that comping and that rhythm along with the the lead guitar playing? You know, I mean, so it's, it's the, what you think about it's a, it's a similar path to to Hendrix too, with you know the the Isleys and the Little Richard and all that and all that stuff he did to get the rhythm down so well, and then all the lead stuff. And the singing. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting. I'm glad you brought up Jimmy uh, was because uh, in, in that in that sense, because, I, you know, playing with those artists and being what they call the Chitlin circuit back then, which was a lot of African-American clubs in the South and, and festivals and all that, you know, and fish fries and, and, and barbecues and all these different big, huge field, you know, concerts that would happen. Uh there were people still on that circuit that were there when Hendrix was. And then you had to think that was only 30 years before. So if I'm thinking in terms of today, I'm thinking like that's, you know, 1994, you know, so that's Weird. how much time yeah. it. So, you know, going back to that era, he had just been there. And so they, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, I remember that Hendrix boy, you know, and it would be like and they would be tailoring my clothes. And I would just be like, I was like, what? <laughs> I was like. 
oh yeah, man, Jimi Hendrix was in this band. I would be like, wait, did you just say Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> That's how I discovered that Hendrix had played with all those people while I was playing with all the same people. And I was going, wait a minute. And so that's what, when I met Buddy Miles, that's what brought us together was he heard that rhythm comping and he knew immediately that I had come from that school. He just, by watching the way I, sh I shaped the chords and then listening to it, that he knew that's what joined us together. That's he, I mean, he gave me a, the biggest giant hug and he was like, I've been looking for you, man. You know, And so that, that was, that's what really brought, you know, me and him and Billy Cox, you know, really all understood each other so well because, and I, I didn't have a, and like, a, again, probably having known that before I went into that world, it, it would have probably been a, a way more overwhelming. So, you know, there again, you go, Hey man, Berkeley or like Chitlin circuit, <laughs> you know, it's like, I would rather go to the same school that Jimi Hendrix went to. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm looking at videos and thank goodness for YouTube, you know, and there are some out there plenty actually, but you know, that show you back in the nineties, even before you had your first record out. Yeah. And I mean, you can see that you're just channeling, you know, you're, you're at that level where you can just let it go and channel, let it flow through you. And, you know, you're not having to really think about it, overthink stuff. And, when did you get to that level and point, you know, and for other aspiring players out there, what can you advise to try to get to that point? Man, you know, Scott, that's a great question. And I think, you know, I, I rem just really remembering back, I think really around high school, you know, I just remember I was playing a lot of gigs. I was working a lot. Um, you know, as a young guitar player and, um, you know, I had my, my, my band at school, which, you know, we were like a little punk band and metal band and, you know, what all the kids wanted to hear, you know, playing all the, the, the school parties and the, you know, the, the after prom keg party. And so it was a lot of, you know, you're a cover band, you're playing all the music that's, that's happening. That was happening at that time, like Metallica and Nirvana and Alice and Chan, you know, all that, that, that rock music that was happening in the nineties. And um, so and then I would go play with, um, you know, I had adults. I had I, I went and played in blue in actual bars and went and was a working musician. And I had to like I remember leaving my high school band and because we were booked so much and I was playing in actual bars. All my friends, number one, were were pissed off at me because I could get into a bar and they couldn't, <laughs> you know. And then I was playing, you know, and then I was earning uh, earning good money. And, uh, and that was my high school job was playing live. And so um, that's when it began to develop for me. I, I was out playing live and it was just, it was playing live and playing with other musicians. And again, I think that's the importance of, you know, you can sit in your room all day and learn how to be, you know, Joe Satriani or, 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 you know, whoever, um, whatever shred guys out there right now. And, uh, or, you could, you know, you go out and start playing with other people and, and playing with other musicians. And I think that is what developed jamming, you know, just getting in a room and jamming for, for hours. You know, I think that's what started to really open up that, um, that channel, you know, um, and listening to 
other music, not just listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix and, and whoever. It was listening to John Coltrane, Miles Davis, you know, heavy jazz records like that, that where that was all that was about, you know, listening to Coltrane, you know, um, listening to Miles, you know, the electric Miles stuff, you know, in the mid set, early mid seventies, where they were just jamming on the one and just getting out there. You know, that was the stuff that, that, you know, that continuous jamming was what, what for me was what opened it up. And so that was, you know, during high school uh, and all that. And then all that changed when I went to be a sideman. Then it was like shh, right back in the box and get back here and then learn how to play rhythm and then go back out and solo some more. So that's where it, really when it began to develop. So that's what I would suggest. I mean, it's, it's about listening to all those kinds of records, you know, people, um, you know, that, that are jamming a lot and, and, and really getting in tune with that and, and really trying to open that up. And then it just, you know, hours of repetition and, and playing and practicing and, and doing that, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I practiced, you know, when I got out of school and I was at home, I mean, I practiced at times for nine hours a day, man. I mean, that's all I did all day long was practice and play. And, um, you know, and, 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 and just, and then, would turn all the records off that I was learning to. And then how do I come up with my own thing, you know, and how do I come, how do I start merging all of this to be my own style? So, and then going for it. Yeah. I mean, that was just, I mean, it just, it, there was just, it became a connection, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, man, maybe, you know, maybe some acid and some shrooms help too. <laughs> Just being honest. Hey, <laughs> so. Truth and rhythm, baby. That's the show. <laughs> you know, well, go try what, this at home kids. <laughs> all right. When I, when I had uh, Eric Gales on, um, who I just love him so much. Um, but yeah. I asked him when he's in that space, what's going through his mind. Yeah. And uh, so I'd like to ask you that same question. And uh, if you didn't hear it or see it, I'll tell you what he said after you tell me what goes through your head. Oh man. I mean, I, all kinds of things. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about thinking about my chick. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, thinking about that. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, I, just all kinds of ethereal stuff, man. I just, I go into a very spiritual place at times. And then, uh, you know, other times it is, it's, it's, it's almost a sexual thing, you know? Uh, but you know, man, I don't, you know, it's really interesting. That's an interesting question because it's all over the place. I, it's, uh, sometimes, I mean, just coming back to earth, I mean, coming off stage, that's why I need a minute, you know, P I know I've, um, people have, have approached me immediately coming off stage to sign stuff or to do whatever. And I'm just kind of like, I need a minute and I'm not trying to be a dick. It's like, I'm press. just like, tr yeah. I'm trying to figure out where the fuck am I? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, man. Can I cuss? On? I'm you sorry. Can. You can. <laughs> it's just like, I'm trying to figure out where I am. I'm just like, whoo, I got to come back, come back down because it's just like, damn, dude, that was a lot. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is that, you know, it's, it's coming back to earth, man. For me, it's, it's very out of body and, uh, and very crazy, but yeah. Um, I mean, and sometimes it's just big titties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, girls. <laughs> just being honest. Yeah. Eric talked about, um, thinking about pain. Oh, dude. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, 
I mean, do you hear how me and Eric play? <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's the blues, man. That's about our lives. Serious blues, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, fuck, man. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. No, yeah. I mean, especially in the blues, and and you know, and that again, to go backwards to the to the musical school I came from, that those were the guys. Like, I'll never forget. I was on the road with somebody. I can't remember who it was. It was Johnny Taylor or, or one of those dudes, maybe Lucky or some one dude. And I was out on the road and my first girlfriend, who was like my little first love, was cheating on me, you know, because I was gone all the time, you know, and they were and we were kids. I mean, you're, you know, you're teenagers, man, you know, and it has to happen at some point. Right. And so um, and I just remember feeling that. And I was like, fuck. And, and I remember being, and I was so grateful that I was with those dudes that, um, you know, were able to, to sit me down right then and there in real time and go, man, that's the blues. Like what you're going through. And then it was kind of like, you know, man up, grab your guitar and put it out that way. And so, yeah, that real deep thing. Oh yeah. And all the child, the trauma and the childhood stuff. And the healthy way to get it out that that wasn't you know drugs and alcohol and 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 the massive abuse that was happening as well of, of substances. I mean, now today it's even better without that because it's like that is the way the the, the main way to really channel it out and to really make it pure and a release of it. You know, um, I mean, one of my one of my students, uh, longtime students who's doing very well now, a girl named Allie Venable. Uh, I was working with her and she began to get a lot of notoriety around her, around our area. She was playing shows with us. She was out playing a lot live and a lot with a lot of other guitar players. And she was getting a lot of press and she was still in high school. She was probably a junior sophomore, a junior real early on in high school. And I would go over to her house, man, I was doing lessons with Allie like three times a week. I mean, I was going over like Monday, Wednesday and Fridays. If she didn't have a gig, sometimes it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I was doing like a lot of lessons with Allie. And um, and I went and and she called me one day and um, she I, I, no, I was on her way to the house for a lesson and I called her and she sounded real bummed out. And I was she was like, I don't know if I want to play today. And I was like, dude, I'm, on, I'm almost to your house. Like, I'm almost there. So sorry. I'm like on the way there, dude. Like we got to play. I'm not feeling it. And so I got there and she was in a room and she wouldn't come out and her dad was there. And he was like, I don't know, man, maybe you can talk to her. And, uh, and these girls at school were picking on her because she was in the newspaper and was getting a lot of press. And it was like such a mind blowing thing to see that side of like girls being mean to each other and teenage girls and high school bullshit and cheerleaders and being mean to the, to this, the artistic girl. And, and I was like, I never had seen it from that side. And, but it's still, again, I, it, then it became my responsibility, like Bobby Blue Bland and little Milton and all those guys did with me when my little girlfriend was cheating on me was like, sit down, pick your guitar and play the fucking blues, you know, and that's, this is the blues. You want to play the blues? This is it. And so that was my opportunity for her because she didn't want to play. She like went in her room, like doing what teenage girls do. And so what was cool was I had the ability to then get her out and we sat down and we played and she started playing some amazing shit. And I was like, there you go. Now 
it's not just that technical ability of of playing you know the actual blues the technical way it's it's this shit you know coming from your head to your heart to your hands that you know like michael bloomfield used to talk about uh it's that translation and so it was really cool to be a, a teacher and a mentor like guys had been for me to do that with her but from a complete because you know the blues is about that it's about your, your your girl's cheating on you or she left you or my baby done left me again and, and i had like the, the stereotypical like textbook shit this was a girl that had cheerleaders and shit picking on her and was like depressed and sad about it so it was like wow this is a whole new perspective and the shit still is the blues Blues is universal. Cool. I mean, yeah. but, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've always, you know, uh, gravitated to just the blues based style, you know, rather yeah. than the, the shreddy, you know, I love speed, you know, mm -hmm. and playing, uh, but it's got to have that feeling. It's got to have that rhythm and be locked in on some level. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've always felt is the common thread through different genres of that even though those genres are looked at as separate you know places but you know to me if you listen to you know a zz top or a, a stevie ray or a acdc or even an ohio players or funkadelic hell yeah you know or heavy blues like uh you know going back to you know um muddy or whoever mm -hmm. it's got that same feel to me you know which is the rhythm is in your soul right and um and the playing touches those spots in you and i think you know players like you get that and it comes out in your music you know some of your blues has a touch of funk in it oh absolutely you know absolutely. so can you talk to that at all about the intersection of you know that feeling and and the styles and because um, for example, and maybe not everyone knows it, but I mean, you did a cover of FOP early on, which was an Ohio player's tune. And, you know, so segregating of all these styles troubles me. Right. Well, I mean, you know, growing up again, that musical school I came from, you know, the R&B and the soul and all. I mean, that's where I came. That was where I went to school. Um, and it was funny because when I met Prince, I mean, Prince was like, you know, he he looked at me and he said, because we were talking about bands and he was asking me, you know, who I loved as a kid. And you know, all the times like, oh, man, I was really into Led Zeppelin. You know, I used to love to smoke weed, listen to Led Zeppelin when I was a kid, you know, and, and we were talking about it. And um, and he looked at me and he said, well, Ohio Players was my Led Zeppelin, you know. And so, uh, you know, and I and I love them, you know, and I thought, wow, this is so cool that I got the opportunity to, to hang with Prince and, and we shared that kind of commonality in how, how did, what were the circumstances of you meeting prince buddy miles oh, it was okay. it was through buddy um buddy took me down um it was during the rainbow children tour and he uh he took me buddy um, um prince was playing at the fair park music hall uh in dallas and um he didn't even tell me buddy didn't tell me where we were going or anything he was like we're going somewhere tomorrow like put on all your best shit, <laughs> wear your hat, you know, with the feather, <laughs> like, put on your, your little vest and all your little shit you got and your jewelry. I gave, you know, and I was, I was like, what are we doing? And it was like, and be here at nine in the morning. I was like nine in the morning. 
the fuck? I was like, dude, okay. And he, and he wasn't telling me like anything about where we were going or anything. So here I am putting on all my stage gear, you know, at, 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 in the, at, at, at 7 a.m., you know, and, and I was like, okay, I didn't know we were shooting a video or taking pictures or what we were doing. And, um, and we, I got over to his house and a buddy of mine owned a limo company and uh, he had called him. And he shows up and I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? And he rolls up in a limo, you know, and he, he was driving limos and he had a limo service and he shows up with a limo and he picked up Buddy and I and, and everybody. And um, he took us um, to hang to we, we went to the went to the Fair Park Music Hall, uh, you know, and uh, to Princess Soundcheck. And we walked in and the first person we met was Billy Sparks, you know, uh, who, you know, for people that don't know, you know, the club owner in Purple Rain, you know, who was his longtime, lifelong tour manager. And then Billy ran down a whole list of rules. And I'm like, what are we doing? And he's like, man, we're going to meet a friend of mine. And I, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't even know he was playing in town until we, we like walked in the door and I started seeing all the symbols, you know, on the road cases. And I went, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, I was like, whoa. And um, and then Billy walks out and he gives us this whole list of rules. Like, man, don't he's like, if you're smoking cigarettes, don't not smoke, you know. And I was like, he was like, don't smell like smoke around him, don't smoke around him, don't you know, even smell like smoke, you know. Uh, a lot of different there was this whole list of rules. And we walked in and Takumi, my good bro Takumi, who's ja uh, Japanese guitar tech who works with a lot of bands, and we're dear friends. He's uh we talk about it all the time. Walked in the door, and the first person I met after Billy was Takumi, and he's holding uh, the Purple Rain Telecaster, and Takumi's standing right there, and he's like, got the telly, and he's like, I go, I walked in, and I was like, is that Prince's telly? And he was like, yeah, man, here. <laughs> and like, hung it on me. <laughs> I was just like, what the fuck, you know? And uh, <clears throat> so we went backstage, and Maceo Parker was playing uh, sax. You know, it's that whole Rainbow Children era with John Blackwell and Rhonda Smith on bass and awesome band. Uh, yeah, you know, NATO on keyboard. You know that that whole band. And um, Candy Dolfer was playing sax and Greg Boyer and um, uh, from P Funk. And uh, and so I go back and I'm with Buddy, and Buddy just goes backstage, and he's Prince, Prince, and he's just screaming his name out. And then, you know, and he goes into Maceo Parker's green room and starts eating Maceo's catering, like unwraps it and just starts eating Maceo's food. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're eating Maceo's catering. And Macy, Maceo comes in there and he's like, buddy, what the hell are you doing in my food, man? You know? And I'm just like, oh, my God, there's Maceo, you know. And, uh, and so we're backstage and then a door opens. I'm walking down the hallway. And a door opens beside me and I went, oh, shit, there's kids back here. And it was and, it, and I go, oh, shit, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought it was a little kid coming out of the door. There's this little guy, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, there's kids back. And I was like, oh, oh, whoa. <laughs> and he just immediately was like, oh, hey, brother, what's up? And gave me a huge, big ass hug and like held on to me and was like, buddy. And then went over to and had me walk me over. And then we like doing this big group hug. And he's like, hey man, you guys want to go jam? And I'm I was like, Yeah. <laughs> like, sure. 
And um, and we went out, we went up and jam. And he played keyboard. He was playing keyboard, bass, and keys. And and Buddy Miles was playing drums. And I'm playing the big cymbal, plastic, purple guitar. <laughs> and Takumi's like, check this one out. Check this one out. You know. And he's handed me guitars and. Wow. And we jammed for a long time and, and Prince played keys and sang some shit. We played blues and all kinds of, he was like, man, and Buddy's like, man, play us, play a blues, two, three, and Buddy's singing, you know, and then they're like trying to stop. And, you know, if you knew Buddy Miles, I mean, he could go on and on and on. And they were like trying to cut the sound check. They're like, Buddy, Buddy, Buddy. <laughs> and he just kept on going and, uh, so we really, and then we had an after party jam after that uh, at another club in Dallas after the show. So we jammed at Soundcheck for a long time. Prince played the show. Then we went to another club in Dallas. And yeah, and then we were friends from there on out, man. He had come to Dallas several times looking for me and, and people gave me messages and studio owners and production company people. And they were like, they would, they saw, they would run into me and grab me and go, dude, Prince was in town. He was looking for you, man, you know, and. And it was really crazy. So uh, a lot of deep admiration. We had we had some great hangs, and uh, yeah, he was just he was amazing. He was so supportive of me. And uh, and when those early records I did came out, you know, I sent him copies of them, and and he wrote me notes back, and he gave me this beautiful golden eagle with with um, with diamonds in it, you know, that his jeweler had made, and um. You know, just so he was just such a great friend, man. Such a great dude. I think last time I, I we hung out was probably 2011. You know, he came to Dallas, played a show, and and um, you know we hung out and um, and it was just like you know just making a, a good hang with a good friend. There was not all this mysterious mystique weirdness. It was just he was just another bro, man. We just hung out and talked about you know all the music we loved and what are you doing, what are you up to, what's going on, and and jokes and laughing and fun and and good times and i mean he literally <clears throat> he he held a conversation with me at one show i'm standing up behind the pa column on the wings of the stage he's out performing and dancing and doing all his shit and we we're talking about his guitar rig and he's out like and i'm going like and he's explaining to me what all his pedals do he's like coming out there going, and this one over here and he's like hold on one second and he goes out there and does some more shit and then goes back up there and goes, okay. And then this other one does this other thing. And this goes here and the chorus pedal's there. And then the delay, one second. And then goes back out there again and holds this entire conversation while he's explaining his guitar rig to me live. And I'm just sitting there going, I can't believe this is happening. Like not missing a beat and doing all his shit and spinning and dancing and, you know, jumping and, and then coming back over there in the middle of the con and just keeping the conversation going. It was, it was incredible. I mean, greatest performer I've ever, ever one, been one on stage a, with, played one of a with, kind. been yeah. in the presence of. Did, did you ever get to see him in person, uh, play some guitar? Oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. We absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, we, uh, you know, at, at that, at that sound check, you know, he, we, you know, we pass guitar back and forth and, you know, Takumi is my, Takumi is always my defer, you know, guy go because I tell this story and they're like, yeah, right, whatever, man. And I just go and I've had to like literally on Facebook just tag Takumi and go, Takumi, <laughs> please come set this shit straight, <laughs> you know, because these dudes ain't believing that I, you know, this happened. And uh, 
and yeah, we had you know monumental hang, and and it was it was it was epic. But yeah, I mean, he great knowledge of the blues and 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 lead guitar. I mean, he was an incredible. I mean, just something that nobody ever talks about of what an, a brilliant, incredible guitar player Prince was. I mean, with the, all that rhythm shit we were talking about. I mean, and then that's what he loved about me that I I understood. All that, you know, and more so than the lead, again, more so than the lead playing, you know, the chord voicings and where to place them and how to, you know, how to hold the pocket and all that shit is what we we talked about all the time. Mm, amazing. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, to get back to the original thing about the Ohio players and all those bands, yeah, it was just further influence of of, of him and being around those people and being around all those different artists uh, of that of that caliber, um, and 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 just understanding that um, you know that you know uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Ohio Players, Parliament, Funkadelic, and I went into a you know again then being around all of those guys, you know, being good friends with Blackbird, McKnight, and and Michael Hampton, and all those guys, and really connecting with with Blackbird. Um, you know, was, was really cool. And I just, and I, and I knew Blackbird from playing with Miles, you know, he had, he was on, uh, I think the flood record or one of those live, one of those, cause I was way into the electric mile shit, you know, all the big, which is, which was, you know, heavy, hardcore funk music, you know, and, um, you know, being, being influenced by that and, 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 you know, befriending all those guys, uh, you know, and discovering Eddie Hazel, you know, and Eddie Hazel being such a huge influence on me, um, you know, it, that's what, uh, you know, really began to shape that sound. But even earlier than that was being a kid in New Orleans, you know, and that's where uh, my dad would take me down to, um, you know, Rocket Bowl when it was just a bowling alley. And it was like Art Neville in half the meters were playing George Porter. Those guys were playing there like every Wednesday night. And I'd go sit in with them and I didn't even know who they were, you know? And my dad was like, my dad's taking me to the bowling alley to play with these old dudes again. You know? It's like, I'm up there sitting in with, you know, half the Neville brothers, you know, and, and they were, you know, playing, you know, that new Orleans funk, you know, that, that whole other genre of, of funk music that, you know, that I just naturally had grown up with. So there was, it really began with the new Orleans stuff, you know, and then, you know, later on, like I said, playing in solo and R&B bands and playing with horn players and horn bands and other musicians in that world, they turned me on to that music. And then, you know, and then meeting, you know, a lot of my heroes, like we just talked about, like Prince, who further influenced that and turned me on to even more of that music. So, you know, deeply embedded uh, into that. And, um, you know, and like I said, then, you know, Eddie Hazel, another unsung hero, was always a huge, big hero of mine. Did you ever meet him? I never did. No, he 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 uh, he passed away when I was in high school, so I I, um, I didn't get to meet Eddie. But I heard a lot of stories through Buddy. Uh, you know, Buddy Miles uh, really. Um, they were really close, and they were they were actually planning on a um, on a band of gypsies thing with Eddie when he passed away. They were trying to get um uh something happening there and um it never happened so it was it was such a drag you know because you know that was uh he was he was he was so great 
and and so underrated and uh you know people need to know more about eddie hazel you know there's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview just continue on to the next part of the episode also be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net thank you very much